Good evening. Well, it's great to uh, be with you uh, to you this evening. If you've got a Bible, we'd like to open it at Ephesians uh, chapter 1 and verses 1 to 14. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 1 to 14. We're going to be looking at that, at that tonight. You need to forgive me, I'm loaded uh, with a cold and my eyes are watering like mad. So if you see me bringing out this hanky and wiping my... It's either because I'm sweating like mad or <laughs> because my eyes are watering like mad. But Ephesians chapter 1. Is this too loud? Is this all right? Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. Paul writes... This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom, and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Amen. This is God's word. And let me just pray before we we look at this. Father, we come before you, eh, Lord, humbled uh, and in awe of who you are. Father, we thank you so much that even though we are fallen, sinful uh, creatures, Father, we're here tonight only because of your grace and your love uh, which you've shown us through your Son. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us and so, Father, we pray that you would speak uh, through your word to us tonight and encourage us and build up our hearts and help us to stand firm in our faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The TV programme, uh, Doctor Who, I'm sure most of you will know what it is and will have watched it at some point uh, in your life. The few times I've watched it myself, the TARDIS, the, time, the Doctor's uh, time travel machine, has totally fascinated me. And it's fascinated me because from the outside, the TARDIS just looks like any other police telephone box. There's nothing unusual about it, nothing impressive about it, nothing significant. From the outside, it just looks like an old, ordinary police telephone box. But it's not until the doctor opens the door and you get to go inside and see that it's not just an old 
police telephone box, but it's something far greater than that. It's not until your eyes are opened and you get to see inside that you get to see the significance of it. That it's much more than an old police telephone box. Well, friends, in a similar way, it's the same with the church and the gospel, isn't it? The church and the gospel often don't look that impressive, do they? Often it doesn't look as if the gospel is making much impact in the world. Nor does it always look as if God's plans and purposes are being worked out. And it certainly doesn't seem as if the church is where the action is really happening, does it? But Paul has written his letter, and certainly the first half of this letter, to encourage and strengthen the Ephesian believers by reminding them of the riches they have been blessed with in Christ. God's plans and purposes are being worked out in this world, despite the fact that how it looks to us at times. God's plans and purposes are being worked out in this world through the gospel to unite all things in Christ. And the church is where God is displaying this and making known his manifold wisdom to rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And so Paul in this passage blows the Ephesian believers away with what God the Father has done for them in Christ. He sets out before them God's eternal plans and purposes for the universe. He leads them in praising God for his glorious work in them and for uniting them to Christ by grace. And he's writing to remind them and encourage them that they are part of God's plans and purposes because of their union with Christ. And he does that because he knows that we're prone to forgetting and prone to getting discouraged and disheartened by the lack of sight that we have. Now Paul went uh, to Ephesus during his second missionary journey and he stayed there around uh, two and a half years. Ephesus was a huge place with a, a big population and a lot of wealth. It was also a place full of dark magic arts and idol worship. And there was a massive idol worshipping community in Ephesus who worshipped the goddess called Artemis. Now, Artemis had supposedly had fallen uh, from the sky and people thought that she was from heaven, a god, the saviour of the world. But in reality, it was just a massive rock which they carved the goddess out of. But not only was the idol worshipped, it was also used uh, for profit by some people. They made smaller shrines and sold them onto the people in Ephesus so they could worship not only at the temple but at home as well. But through the preaching of the gospel by Paul and others, the word started to take root and bear fruit in Ephesus. People were turning from the idol to serve the true living God. And because of this, the people who made a living from selling Artemis merchandise started losing profit and eventually started a riot because of it. Luke writes in Acts 19 verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. In other words, it was mad mental mayhem There was no little disturbance there. But in the midst of all that chaos, a church was started. And now sometime after all that, and after Paul had left Ephesus and now in prison, he's writing this letter to encourage and build up the believers in Ephesus who are finding their Christian life hard and difficult in their present surroundings. Feeling weak and inferior to the massive an impressive looking idol, Artemis, looming over them in the background. This goddess who was worshipped by more than 50,000 people in Ephesus and even further abroad. 
compared to the small and not so impressive community of believers who follow Jesus, they felt intimidated and small. At, time, at times they could hear the deafening chants of the thousands who would go to the temple and proclaim, Great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And I wonder how they felt when they heard those chants. And I wonder what they thought too, perhaps, have we got this right? Is this really God's plan? We seem so small and weak, but they look so big and strong. Is this really where the action is? They probably felt how a lot lot of us feel today. Intimidated, disheartened and discouraged. Today we are in a similar position in the church, although our contexts are a bit uh, different. We don't have a massive temple looming over us and intimidating us. But we live in a similar society full of idolatry, immorality, a world that is totally against the gospel of Jesus Christ and his church. We live in a similar position where it's very easy to get discouraged, disheartened and down because the church can look very insignificant and unimpressive in comparison to the world, in comparison to the impressive looking things the world offers us. The gospel doesn't always seem to be making much impact, does it? doesn't seem like this is where the action really is. The church doesn't seem to be significant or impressive in the world's eyes. If you went outside now and told someone you could take them somewhere where the real action in the world is happening and you brought them here, they would think you're having a laugh, wouldn't they? They would think you're half your nut. They would say, you've got to be joking, the church. Jesus, there's no way this is where the real action is happening. It's out there in the world. It's certainly not here. Nothing's happening in here. And friends, we also might be tempted to think this at times as well throughout our Christian lives. I know I am. Like the Ephesians, we can be tempted to think that action is in more impressive looking things and places. But as I said, Paul has written this letter to these discouraged disheartened down believers to encourage them and strengthen them he wants them to stand firm in their faith to be built up and to know God better he wants his readers to have their eyes opened to the unseen realities and blessings of being in Christ and to see that God really has blessed them with every spiritual blessing through their union with Christ and this letter's here for us also to encourage and strengthen our hearts so that we stand firm and our faith, and to remind us that the church really is where the action is. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 is a key passage, key verse in this passage. Through the gospel, God is working to unite all things together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Being in Christ, being joined together with Christ is where the action truly lies, friends. Because in and through Christ, God is working for his glory and declaring to the world in his universe, his power, authority, and reign. And Paul says that statement 12 times in this passage. In Christ, in him, through Jesus Christ, in the beloved, to ground us and affirm us in our faith because Jesus is the center of all that God is doing. And to be in Christ or to be united to him means to have a personal relationship with him, to belong to him, to be joined to him and to look at him as saviour and lord. 
It's a bit like marriage, as Paul tells us in chapter 5, where two people become one and are joined together. They are united as one and share in each other. And so it is with us in Christ. And because of that union, we share in all the eternal blessings in him. There's no greater union that we can have than having union with Christ. And what better way to encourage the disheartened believers in Ephesus than telling them they are in Christ. They are part of the action. Whether they feel it or not, or even at this point realize it, they are part of God's eternal plans and purposes for, the, for this world because of the simple fact that they are in Christ, because God had set them apart and chosen them in him. The action isn't in more impressive or successful realities around us in the world, celebrities or other religions that more people follow, successful businesses, people with money. The real action is happening in the thing that the world hates and the unimpressive thing in the world's eyes. The action is happening right here in the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. What better way to build us up and to help us stand firm in the midst of pressure, to stand firm in our faith than to hear of the great blessings and realities of being in Christ. So let's look at this amazing beginning to Paul's letter together then. Begin to be in awe and wonder of the blessings we have received in Christ and through our union with him. Well, first of all, Paul begins with his usual greeting in his letter and greets the Ephesian believers here in a very encouraging way. He addresses them as the saints who are in Ephesus, verse 1, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Paul's letters when he says to the saints and faithful in Christ, or those sanctified in Christ, he means those who have been set apart, those who are holy because of what God has done for them, those who are possessed by God, and indeed, that is what Paul goes on to expand on in the rest of the passage. He goes on to tell them how this came about. And the same can be said of uh, all those who are trusting and have put their faith in Christ as Saviour. They are called saints, holy ones, set apart by God through Christ. But we are not saints in the sense that some think of saints. Paul doesn't mean those eerie pictures of guys in stained glass windows who are made out to be almost unhuman and spiritual giants, people who no one can relate to and who make us feel crushed because we think we'll never be as spiritual as them. That's not what Paul means here when he says saints. Paul means they are saints in the sense of what God had done for them. It's real people Paul is saying this to here. People who struggle, who fall, and people who are sinners and so often wander. It's people like us which Paul says are the saints. They are the spiritual ones. Every Christian, past, present and future are saints. Everyone who's in Christ is a saint. It's not just the spiritual elite. And so Paul goes on to explain how they became the saints in Ephesus in the rest of the passage. Look at verse 3. Being in Christ means you have every spiritual blessing. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If you're here as a Christian tonight, it doesn't matter how long you've been one, it could be five minutes, five years, 
or even 50 years, every spiritual blessing is yours in Christ. You have been given them. You have them all. God the Father has blessed you abundantly with everything that you need. But note what Paul means here is not that in Christ we have been or will be blessed with every material blessing. Again, it's not what some people say today. Come to Jesus and everything will be great and you'll have health, wealth and prosperity. We all know that's nonsense, don't we? Because some of us who are here tonight are skint. (laughs) Some of us don't have the best health. And some of us are not prospering, are we? But that's not to say that God doesn't bless us now in particular ways. He does, because that's, but that's not Paul's concern here. So what does Paul mean here when he says we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing? Well, it's not material blessings. It's so much more glorious than that. The spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about here are in the rest of the passage But notice that these blessings are in the heavenly places, literally the heavenlies, which is not heaven, but the unseen realm where the spiritual powers and authorities dwell. They are unseen realities which we have received through our union with Christ, which is important to know and be reminded of because we don't always feel or necessarily see the blessings visibly. But nevertheless, they are still realities. All the great riches that Christ have been given to us because we have been united to him. Christians are the most blessed people who walk this earth. And I hope that encourages you tonight. If you're a Christian here tonight, you're the most blessed person who walks this earth. Well, in the rest of the passage, we see what these blessings are. Look at verse 4 where Paul encourages us with a past blessing. We have been lovingly chosen and adopted in Christ. All the blessings of salvation are ours because God has chosen us in Christ before the dawn of time, before the world was created, even before the foundation of the world. That's a mind-blowing thing to think about, isn't it? God had us in mind before any of us were even born or thought of, before anything was ever made, when it was just God, Father, Son, and Spirit. He had chosen us in Christ. How can that be, you might think? Because God is God and well, that's the wonder and majesty of God's sovereignty and election, isn't it? And the more you think about it, the bigger and bigger it gets. We can never here and now, I don't think, fully understand or take that in. But simply to be in awe, wonder and praise of it. And I think that's what Paul wants to happen as we read this. He wants us to be in awe and wonder and amazement of God. But notice that this is not a mechanical thing. God doesn't just randomly choose people. He doesn't put his hand in a hat full of names and pick one out. And that's the next person. Nor does he see something in us that makes him think we deserve such electing grace and mercy and to be adopted into his family. If we think that there's something good in us that would make God choose us and we've got the wrong end of the stick, friends, as we find out in chapter 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins with without hope, at enmity with God and disobedient to all his ways and what fallen the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan. That was and is the sad state and predicament of being outside of Christ. Sorry, my nose is running now. That's bogging, isn't it? <laughs> so there was and is nothing in us that God can or could see that would make him want to choose us. So what did make him want to choose us? Well, we see it here, don't we? Look at 
verses 4 and 5 again. It was his love for us. Someone said, predestination rightly understood is the most comforting and enriching and thrilling of all truths. He goes on to say, what an answer this is to the rootlessness of life for a man to discover that in Christ he is rooted and grounded in everlasting love to get through the ultimate reality and find not nothingness, but a smiling father who has lovingly chosen him. It was God's will. It was God's purpose. And it was to the praise of his glorious grace to shower upon us his love in choosing, predestining, and adopting us. And his purpose and result in all this was, uh, for us was that we would be holy and blameless before him. Scandalous thing about all this, friends, is not that God has predestined, elected, and adopted some into his kingdom, but that one day you, believer, who deserve nothing but wrath and judgment, will stand before God, and because of these things you have received and been blessed with in Christ, and through your union with him, you will be welcomed by your heavenly Father with open arms. You will be welcomed into your heavenly Father's home because you have been chosen and adopted in Christ. Isn't that great? Secondly, verses eight and, uh, 7 and 8, Paul encourages us with a present blessing. We have been graciously redeemed and f- forgiven. Not only has God lovingly chosen us and adopted us, he's also graciously redeemed us through Christ. Paul writes, in him we have, notice the present tense there, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace with which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Friends, the world sees the cross as being one of the most foolish uh, things to have ever happened. They don't want a saviour who looks weak, who is unimpressive and had to die to save them. The world wants someone who is strong, who looks strong and impressive, someone who looks powerful, who can overcome anything and conquer But they can't see that the cross of Christ is where the power of God is. It's there the wisdom of God is shown. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. God in sending his son Jesus and him dying on the cross in our place with his blood being poured out and him hanging on the cross, there the pure and just wrath of God was laid and directed straight upon him. But it wasn't for his own sake that he died, or for his own sin. It was in our place. It was our shame he took, and it was our sin which was laid upon him. And what happened? Well, we walk away free. We stand before the Lord, justified, holy, and blameless in his sight. The God who we were created by and for and created to know, but were alienated from and ignorant of, whose word we disobeyed and rebelled against, we have now been reconciled to him through Christ's death on the cross for us. It's breathtaking to think, is it not, that the God that we offended and rebelled against gave up himself to be a ransom for us. That's what it means to be redeemed, to have redemption. It means to be bought with a price. It means to buy back what is rightfully yours. And what a cost it cost, what a price it cost the God who lovingly chose us and adopted us. It cost him his own son. 
This grace which has been lavished upon us, Paul tells us, brought us this redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Every command that God gave us that we walked over, every loving thing that he did for us that we despised and rejected, every trespass that we made has been forgiven in Christ. And again, hopefully, and I prayerfully hope that that helps someone here tonight. Again, helpfully, someone said, by his death on the cross, Christ has justly purchased his back for, for God at the cost of his own blood. He has dealt with our guilt to bring his pardon. He has overcome the cosmic forces of darkness which bound and enslaved us. He has died to the reign of sin that mastered us and has risen in triumph over all his and our enemies. He was our great exchange. As the hymn says, bearing shame and scoffing root in my place, Condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a saviour. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Again, a good friend sent me this one day. God took the place of the guilty, enduring in himself the condemnation for sin. When a cry went up before him that sin must be covered, he gave himself. In Christ Jesus, God Almighty came and took our human nature precisely in order to put himself in a position where he had blood to shed and a soul to pour out to death to redeem us. Friends in here, in Christ, here tonight, you have that now. You who are in Christ and have been united to him, have that now. Redemption and forgiveness in Christ. Finally, we can see in verses 11 to 14, Paul encourages us with a future blessing of a guaranteed inheritance. I read a story once uh, on the internet of two homeless guys who used to live in a cave in Hungary. They used to walk uh, the streets looking for scrap metal that they could sell for pennies. But this pair of penniless down and outs, as the article described them one day, when roaming the, the streets, were approached by a stranger and were told that they had just inherited a four billion pound fortune from a relative of theirs who had just died. And you can imagine their reaction, can't you? They were overjoyed. Well, friends, we were like the, those pair of penniless down and outs. Before we had nothing, we were so poor before God, we had the scraps of this world. But now because Christ died for us and because of our union with him, we have a glorious inheritance. But that inheritance, friends, is not a four billion pound fortune. It's better, so much better than that. Look at verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things together according to the counsel of his will. Now the inheritance that some get today is just stuff which will all decay, it will all perish and will one day fade away. There is no guarantee that it will last. One day it will be gone and be spent. That four billion pound that those uh, two homeless guys inherited will one day be gone. Either they will spend it or uh, or they will die and it will go to someone else and they'll spend it. It isn't guaranteed really, is it? But look at the Christian's inheritance Look at the inheritance of those in Christ in verses 13 and 14. 
In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Friends, this inheritance of ours in Christ is guaranteed. When we heard the gospel and believed in Christ, we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit and given the promise of this inheritance. The Holy Spirit is a stamp of approval on our lives and the seal by which we will receive our inheritance. But what is this inheritance? Well, really, it's all the blessings that Paul's spelled out for us here in this passage. But simply put, it's eternal life. That's what Jesus said himself, didn't he, in John's Gospel. All who come to me will receive eternal life. And just as that eternal life is found in him, so is our eternal security. Because we have been predestined by the will of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And what is the will of the Father who sent his Son? Well, Jesus said in John chapter 6, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. That's how it's guaranteed, friends. All this we have received in Christ and because of our union with him. Isn't that so encouraging to be reminded of? Doesn't that build us up in our faith? There's nothing greater to hear is there than God, than God the Father in love sent his son to die on the cross to shed his blood so that we, his rebellious creation, might be united to him through his son and receive eternal blessings. We constantly need reminded of that, don't we? Of the effect the gospel has had in our own lives. Why? Because as I said at the beginning, often we don't see the effect the gospel is having in a world which makes us think that the gospel is having no effect at all. But here, just like when the doctor opens the door of the TARDIS and you get to go inside and see that there's a much bigger picture. It's much bigger than what you think. So Paul does here and reminds the Ephesians and us of the glorious blessings we have received in Christ to remind us that God's plans and purposes are being fulfilled In this world, through the gospel, God's plans and purposes to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, are being worked out. And friends, where's the evidence of that? Well, it's in the church, isn't it? It's in the church where lives have been changed and transformed by the gospel, just as we've looked at. Lives which have been blessed by every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places and have been truly united to Christ. Friends, I know at times it doesn't seem like the gospel is having much impact on the world around us. I know we aren't seeing many coming to Christ in our churches every week. But nevertheless, every time we preach, proclaim and share the gospel, although we can't see it, God is at work. God is at work every time we talk to somebody about Jesus Christ and about the gospel. Every time. So brothers and sisters, be encouraged and don't be deceived by the lack of sight that we have. Take courage and boldly proclaim and keep on sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. Because as we do this, as we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world, God's plans and purposes to unite all things in Christ are 
being fulfilled to the praise of his glorious grace. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for these promises uh, that Paul spells out for us here in uh, Ephesians 1. Father, we thank you so much that that you have united us to your Son. And Father, we thank you for the encouragement that we have from that, that we are part of the big plan, your eternal universal plan to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And Father, we praise you for these great blessings. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.